Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com. A look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. Today's guest is a head-turner in so many ways. He is the creator of a podcast that has been downloaded more than 10 million times. This is a podcast about design and architecture that features some of the best storytelling in the business. And in an age where media everywhere are struggling to turn a profit, this man led the charge for the highest-funded journalism project in Kickstarter history. He is the man behind the 99% Invisible podcast, Roman Mars. Welcome to Telling the Story. Thanks for having me. Roman, I consider myself a pretty picky consumer of media. I read a lot of articles, watch a lot of shows, listen to a lot of podcasts. And I usually dump out of them pretty quickly if I'm not interested. But your podcast takes subjects that I never would have thought that I had any interest in. Slot machines, architectural design, city streets, and absolutely captivates me. This show has so many fans. Has it lived up to your expectations? Well, I mean, it's it's completely exceeded my expectations in terms of you know listenership and support. Um, I, I mean, I created it thinking that as a production challenge i sort of enjoyed taking those boring subjects or maybe mundane or everyday subjects and making them fascinating and that was the the joy that created that delta in creating something sort of every day and making it exciting or full of wonder is my is where i take pleasure in doing the show and so in that sense it c- continues to deliver for me because i still I, I love i love working on stories for the program and you're on season three right now, and, yeah. and the episodes keep getting better and, and coming more frequently, which I'm sure has been a challenge in its own right. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, you know, with the season three Kickstarter, I hired uh, Sam Greenspan to help me out. He's my producer, and it helps even those out and get them out more quickly. And um, and so we're we're getting close to getting them out every ten, eleven days, which is which is nice. And uh, you know, maybe next year we can get to once a week, which would be really good too. Yeah. Now I wanted to have you on today for a few reasons. First of all, you're such a good storyteller and I definitely want to get into that with you, talk about your craft, your process. And also, you no doubt have great advice for younger journalists and storytellers. We're going to get to that. But first off, I wanted to start by talking about your very unique position in this industry right now. For each show, you produce a short radio segment for a public radio station in San Francisco, and then you produce your podcast, which is usually far longer than the radio segment, and that is the one that typically gets downloaded, passed around the world. From your vantage point, how do you see the climate changing in terms of the way that people distribute and take in media? You know, I started the show as a public radio show. It was a module. It was meant to be four and a half minutes I designed it to fit into the C block of Morning Edition. So Morning Edition is segmented very, very carefully. And if you're a casual listener, you might not notice it, but there are very strict blocks of where that, um, where the stops and starts so that local stations can slot in a local story in one of those sections. And so for KLW in San Francisco, I designed it to fit in a C block, which is four and a half minutes long. And the first 13 episodes, the pilot season, are only that. And very quickly, it took off online. And the podcast audience was like, well, why is it only four and a half minutes long? It's way too short. (laughs) Um, 
because and this is something that you know and you work in tv you know like you, you've probably never been told in all of your broadcast career oh please make it longer if i get you know, like four and a half minutes i am ecstatic exactly <laughs> no tv news like tops out two and a half or something right. like it's crazy and so like so like we have we're pretty we luxuriate in, in public radio by having sometimes we can have an eight minute story and stuff it's just it's it's nice but you're still told by editors at almost every juncture, make it shorter. <laughs> <laughs> and so finally I had this you know, audience who said, you know, we, we want to spend more time with you in the show. And so I always had more tape. You always do. And so I began to create the show like, you know, those I would kind of create the show to be about that length. It was always about two minutes longer, and then there were painful cuts to get it down to four and a half. Well, I just began to stop at that point, um, save it, work to whittle it down for broadcast, and then I released the podcast version as the slightly longer version. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it was, was for a while. And then eventually, like as the podcast audience becomes your audience, and especially when the podcast audience begins to be the people who pay you to do your show, which what happens in terms of in the Kickstarter, the conception of the stories began to flip and so they became 10 minute stories that i made a four and a half minute version of mm-hmm. instead of four and a half minute version stories that i turned into 10 minute stories or I allowed to be 10 minute stories and so you know some of the more recent ones i haven't even tried to make short versions <laughs> of. they just don't work and then sometimes i i did this long story uh, with Jesse Dukes called The Modern Moloch about car culture and how it's changed in the 20th century. One of my favorite episodes that you've it's done. It's a great that. one. And 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 Jesse really hit that one out of the park. That was, uh, I helped very minimally <laughs> making that good. But the the story is a long story about, you know, our love affair with the car and how it's changed over time and how it was part of PR. And there's this little section inside of it that's about the invention of the word jaywalking and how it was used to ostracize pedestrians in, in traffic. And so the, so the broadcast version of that is just about the invention of jaywalking. I just slotted out one thing that I knew I could do well in four and a half minutes. And that became that story. So it's changed as the show has changed as the, who is essentially my boss changes. And, you know, right now my, my boss is the end user is the listener in a different way than me making it for radio stations and having it, you know, conform to what they most want. Um, I still try to make it cause I mean, this is a project with KLW. They're my home station. I started there. I adore them. I don't work for them or we don't exchange money or anything like right. that. It's just, it's just, I give it to them and, and they helped me out and, you know, they helped me start in the beginning. Well, and that's what I would say, too. I, I would say you are almost more beholden to the people who are paying you. And at this point, the people who are paying you are the people from the Kickstarter campaign, which raised, it, what, $170,000? Yeah, exactly. And so like them and the, you know, the advertisers who do the podcast. And, and so, you know, our most recent episode is almost 29 minutes long. It's something I never anticipated doing um, for the show. It was really meant to be these short little stories. And I do like short little stories. Like, I don't, can, I don't view the evolution of the show as success doesn't mean it gets longer and longer and longer <laughs> until it's an hour long and then it's on weekly on your public radio station. Um, 
I, I kind of made 99, 99% Invisible the way it is for a reason. It's supposed to be tightly edited, dense in information, and be whatever it's supposed to be. You know, sometimes it's eight minutes, sometimes it's 20 minutes. Uh, and, and I don't want to shortchange the public radio audience. I want the four-minute version to also be really good and satisfying in and of itself. So I'm serving quite a few masters in this role. But over time, in the beginning, I began, to, I was, people said, oh, I like your podcast. And I would kind of cringe because to <laughs> me, it's a public radio show. Right. And then, but now I have to admit, I'm a podcaster. I'm much more of a podcaster than a public radio broadcaster these days. What's interesting and, about that is that, sorry to cut you off, but what's interesting about that is that, you know, usually people who start their own podcasts or start their own blogs do it so that they can find a way into mainstream media so that they can get noticed and then maybe get a full-time job. Whereas with yeah. you, it's kind of happened in reverse. And I wonder, do you see yourself as kind of the exception to the rule, someone who's had a, an extraordinary amount of success, but whose success would be tough to replicate for most people trying to break in? Well, the part that's not hard to replicate is you can make a quality product and put it out there and reach a gigantic potential audience. The hard part is, you know, realizing that potential mm -hmm. audience. And, you know, I didn't have a broadcast platform for that, but I had friends <laughs> who I worked with in public radio for a long time. So like, you know, one of the big boosts to the show was I was featured on a radio program called Radio Lab, which is yep. huge. Great program on NPR. Show. And, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I think I earned it on the merits of the show, but I also haven't known those guys for <laughs> years and years and years. And so that doesn't normally happen. And so as much as my success is, is kind of on my own and existing in the, you know, in the broad world of the Internet, it's, I stood on the shoulders of people in established broadcast platforms. So, you know, Radiolab helped a lot. And, you know, KLW, you know, helped fund the show in the beginning when nobody was funding the show. And you do right. need institutions like that to take a chance on you. And so... In a way, I, I'm a weird case. Like I'm heavily dependent or I have been heavily dependent on public radio, my connections and my life working in it and um, and help with NPRX, my distributor. You know, they they're the person who pay me to do my normal job. <laughs> and if I didn't have a normal job, I wouldn't have made it this far. Um, that was flexible and allowed me to work at night on 99% Invisible. And so all these things contributed to the success. And so that part of it is hard to turn that into a formula and sort of give to someone to replicate. But the parts that you can replicate are you can make something that is of the quality that people enjoy who like public radio and are looking for more and more. I mean, I don't think that we have saturated the podcast market in the slightest. Mm -hmm. My most popular webpage is the webpage where I recommend other podcasts I listen to. And, I believe it. And, and, I, and I'm one of those people. I listen to hours and hours of radio and podcasts a day. So in that sense, it's so great to be doing this now. Whereas if you are trying to get into public radio, there are only so many hours in the day. They are devoted to things. I mean, they're devoted to 
Car, Car Talk stopped making shows and Car Talk is still on the air. Right. Because they, people love it and that hour is sacred to certain people <laughs> and they make money on it. And so when you are trying to get into that, that is very difficult to break into. And even though most of the public radio world knows about my show because of the Kickstarter and various other, and just know me from my other work and stuff, um, I, my show is not successful on radio. It's available for radio. It's on several stations, but it, it's not on a ton of stations. Um, you know, it, it just, that's a strange world. I mean, one of the strengths of public media is that there are these 800 stations and they all have a different person running them. There's right. no, con- there's no network that's set that eight o'clock on Fridays, everyone plays the same thing. It's always different. So when you're, that's, that's a great, that heterogeneity is a strength in terms of public media as a whole and us as a society. As an independent producer, that means I have to make 800 phone calls <laughs> to get on those stations. And then most likely it means I have to make a 2,400 phone calls. Right. Um, and so that's really, really tough. And, but you don't have to ask the, that permission when you have a podcast. And you can find traction. You can find people to help you out, to feature you, to blog about you. You know, these things are pretty equal to everyone. Um, and, and that gives me a lot of hope and, and people should try to replicate. I had a question and, and I was debating whether or not to ask you this question because I was debating whether or not it mattered. But I'm going to ask you and uh, and doesn't need to have a long answer, but just kind of your quick take on this. Do you consider yourself a journalist? You're thinking about it. Yeah, I, I never used to. I, w- I was fundamentally a storyteller, and right. and 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 now I kind of hate that term sometimes. Hate the term uh, storyteller or journalist. Yeah, I mean, I hate no, no. I, I kind of hate the word storyteller sometimes when it's co-opted by every person in the world. You know, like it begins to taint it when uh, a PR guy says they're a storyteller or a you know whatever. You know, like right. it just it doesn't. It begins to lose meaning, um, but. You know, I used to, I like the term producer. I, my job is to make things sound good. And, and I write with other people's words. Like they talk to me and I rephrase it so that it's as interesting and as compelling as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. And so, um, now in the sense that I'm a journalist, now I do recognize I'm a journalist. But up until this point, I really haven't been. Honestly, like my job in public radio has been to work as a producer to um, sound design things. And it's like a different sort of role. Right. And the reason um, that I brought it up was because I feel like in your role, you operate. See, so what you do, you know, you're obviously you're you're not making up fiction. You're telling the truth. You're providing a factual, uh, you know, account. Of various stories, but you, in a way, I almost feel like you get to work outside the, not the bounds, but the constraints that journalism the, sometimes brings. I'm super lucky because I've, you know, because I don't have a boss. Right. <laughs> so I'm allowed, <laughs> I'm allowed to, so I like to think of it as I have a column about design. So mm-hmm. I have a fact-based opinion column. That's how I treat my show. So it is not free of opinion or a point of view. 
And it isn't always stated that this is my point of view. It's just always presented in this way. And I think to me, it's honest in that way. But, you know, one of my models as a host, and you will not really hear this in much of, you know, it's not direct, but I think of Jon Stewart as a model, as a host, because you get his point of view, you trust his judgment on certain things, and you know you he's telling the story to affect a certain result, which is to be funny. Mm-hmm. And and my way of telling the story is is to invoke kind of wonder and engagement with the built world. And, you, you know, it's not always the story a journalist would tell, you know, in a, or a reporter would tell exactly that way for a different type of outlet. Right. So in that sense, it is journalism, it is, but it is full of opinion. It is full of point of view. And it is, um, it, you know, it is me in a lot of ways. And but I think that that, you know, is a huge aspect of journalism. And it's just, you know, it's just part of that spectrum. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. My guest is Roman Mars, creator and producer of the 99% Invisible podcast. And I wanted to get into the storytelling craft that you use on your podcast. And what always impresses me is the content of your show is very visual. You're talking about design. You had a, a, an episode a few weeks back on rebar and, and beams that are being used in buildings and railroads. And, and, you know, you're talking about design. You're talking about very visual elements, and yet you do a podcast. It's not visual at all, and yet you're able to present the content that you have in an understandable, digestible way. I had no idea what rebar was until I listened to your podcast about it, and I'd recommend that whoever is listening to this right now goes and listens to that podcast. What is your approach to taking visual subjects and translating them to a non-visual medium? Well, there's basically two routes. One is you could be so sure of your writing that you're able to conjure up the right image in people's mind to tell the story accurately. So they're picturing the right thing and then you're building on that story with with what they're picturing. That's one. That's the that's the hard way. <laughs> um because you're never quite sure. Because the thing about radio is that it is the medium in which you I guarantee you someone is doing something else while they're listening mm-hmm. to you. So you can't guarantee full attention. In fact, like you guarantee not having full attention. TV's not that much different by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess so, but at least you kind of you the intention is people are looking at it. Right. But but maybe you make it so that's not necessarily the case. Um the other way is to tell the story about the thing such that a clear image isn't really required. And so with rebar I don't think you really had to picture rebar perfectly. All you had to get in the very beginning is um, I am very anxious about rebar <laughs> as a <laughs> substance because you see it poking out of things and uh, you see it in movies. As soon as you see rebar in movies, you know that there's some danger of someone going to be impaled on it. Right. And, and so I tell the story in such a way that it, it's not really required that you get the visual perfectly. It's about the idea and the impact that this as a as an item in the built world affects the person sort of emotionally. And 
that that's how I function. So for the most part, I do that. When I have to get the image exactly right, um, it's much more fraught and dangerous territory to get into. And it's one of the reasons why, even though I cover design, I don't cover graphic design all that much unless the image is so simple or so ubiquitous that um, I can get away with it. Uh, And mainly it has to do with using this visual thing as a lens to view how humans react to it. And that story you can always tell, no matter what the medium is. And I think uh, of, a, of a recent podcast you did about Superman, which was uh, just a genius approach to a legendary character. And obviously we all know who Superman is, and, and you go through his history and, and how he is really relevant in a cultural sense and why he exists the way he does. But what really stood out was your guest, who is an unabashed Superman fanatic, and is so enthusiastic as he's talking about him. So you really seem to rely on character development, even as you're talking about things that have nothing to do with the characters themselves. Oh, absolutely. So like, that's one of the key components I need to find. So like, there's this, there are these few things. There has to be anecdotes, a couple of anecdotes, a big idea, some kind of takeaway fact that the type of thing that you would tell someone at a party, you know, <laughs> um, and a very huge dose of geeky enthusiasm about a subject. Not the least and of which comes from you. Exactly. Like often I'm the person that provides that thing. And the reason why you have to do that is you kind of have to um, seduce the audience to care about this thing that they've been trained to not notice because it is so common. You know, whether it's, you know, sewer grates or sidewalk stamps or, you know, <laughs> any type of little tiny thing like most of the good design in the world, the reason why it is good design is because it isn't noticed. You use it without thinking about it. And that's, so if I cover good design at all, the whole idea of it is that you don't notice it. So I have to like pull people along. And part of that is me just showing excitement about things. And and what's great is I have genuine excitement about these things. Part of the, the doing the show over the years has cultivated that in me. I wasn't always as excited about all of these things. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, as a character, have developed that too. Um, but when someone like Glenn Weldon, who I talked to for Superman, we almost reversed that. So I start that piece basically saying, I don't, I don't really care about Superman at all. And I honestly don't. I, I'm sort of amazed at Superman's success in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, but it was set up so that, you know, he gets to convince me instead of me trying to convince the audience. And so that was why I was interested in that as a story, because I knew him, I heard him, I knew, I knew he talks very eloquently about Superman. But my interest was, you know, why does he work as a design character when he doesn't connect with me emotionally at all? And, you know, and he did a really good job at figuring that out. And by the end of it, you know, I was much more on board with him. Um, and, and, and that's why that piece worked for me personally. Yeah. It, uh, another episode that I loved that you did. And by the way, all the links to these episodes that we're talking about can be found on the tellingthestoryblog.com website. I'm going to post the links to each of those on this page with the podcast on it. But another episode that I really love that you did, maybe my favorite one, just in terms of how it, for lack of a better word, seduced me, was your episode on slot machines. Because again, <laughs> here is a subject that I I associated slot machines with 
those old folks in Vegas at seven in the morning wearing the, you know, neon brimmed visors and just cranking on the machines till they, you know, just staring dead eyed at them. And you kept me uh, just completely captivated for about 20 minutes talking about it. And looking back, the one thing that you did, again, very subtly but very effectively in that was use natural audio. And, you know, you just, you take, you bring someone into that world with the sounds of slot machines. We've probably all been in a casino at some point in our lives or been to Vegas or Atlantic City. And you just, you reel people in very casually and then people get engaged with your content. Do you always have in the back of your head some of the effect of, okay, I, I need to use a sound effect here or, you know, a little song break here just to keep things moving, to keep people in that world what's your take on that yeah it depends on the subject Mo there's always something because to me you know you make your work for the medium that you're in and so i am interested in radiophonic radio or podcasts which which means if i transcribed it it wouldn't be effective if i transcribed it and you just heard the words then and just read the words then in a way you're not making radio and so I always keep it in the world of sound and sometimes that scene setting with that, the sound, the cacophonous kind of bloops and bleeps of a casino. Right. Very often I rely really heavily on music to keep the ear interested, to break up the little sections. And, um, and there's certain music that I can put, I can lay down and I can talk over and I can totally make you filled with wonder about something for no reason. You know, like I've never, I don't earn it in the writing. It's just the music that does like 90% of the work for me. Yeah. And so all those things like work together to make an audio piece. And I, I'm, I'm really interested in, um, I work in audio. I, when I play the tape back and react to it, I do it live. Um, I write stuff, but I, I need to be, always recording and listening to keep it in that space so it feels like it's supposed to be happening in the world of audio. Yeah. And um, and so I'm really interested in that. I, I don't always do scene tape um, because, quite, quite frankly, some a lot of my stories aren't stories. They're really more about ideas. And so you can get away with just using music and words to, to do that well. Um, but when I can, you know, I... I try to, you know, if, if it's like the Alvord Lake Bridge, which was the rebar episode, I interviewed both of those guys at the Alvord Lake Bridge because it was local and they were local and it made sense to do it there. But I don't, I don't have to do it that way. It, it just depends. Sure. Last question on, on craft and then we'll move on. You've been doing this now for three seasons. What do you feel has been your most effective storytelling technique? Whoa. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, you know, I did not expect to stun you on this one. Well, I mean, effective technique. I mean, there's so many different little ones that work. The things together. that people respond to, and 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 maybe something that you didn't that you didn't necessarily use at the start of this, but that you've really grown to love and and appreciate how it works. You know, they they were all kind of in the toolbox. From the beginning, like if you listen to the first one, the first few, they do sound like the show, which is which is kind of amazing. Like I'm I'm I was always amazed how 
I felt like I connected with the material pretty early. So that that's a good thing. I think the most amazing thing about the entire project as a series of stories about a bigger idea is how much the audience has tapped in to the the overall tone of like wonder and awareness Mm -hmm. in a very that happens so quickly now i don't have to work at it anymore in a way and very quickly the the response i got from people that i really enjoyed was um is the photos that people take of things that i haven't done stories about and said this felt like 99% invisible to me or I read this article and this felt like 99% visible to me. So crafting this overall tone of the show um, and developing that over time ha- has been one of the great joys of it. I don't know if that's a technique exactly, <laughs> but well, th- but that th- settling into these few things. So there's some of the tropes are, you know, um, you know, I I'm definitely sincere there's a little bit of snarkiness here and there, but it's about really with real sincere wonder about the world and that tone of, um, I'm definitely the way that I speak in the show is, is not a get people's attention tone. It's a get people's attention by making them lean in tone. So it's very quiet. And it's because I started doing the show at night, where my kids were sleeping in the next room. <laughs> and so it was part of what was really happening. And so like, it's a late night radio tone that I like and it make, it builds intimacy and it works for me. It won't work for everybody, but that it works for me. In um, a way, I think, uh, you know, you referenced John Stewart earlier and, and hearing your answer, it, it does seem as if you and he have earned similar trusts amongst your viewership where he, I think, you know, people go into the daily show knowing what to expect from him and knowing that usually if they have a certain outrage about a subject, his target audience, he'll probably share that. And I think similarly, I think the people who listen to 99% of visible, it it doesn't, it only takes a few episodes before you really kind of feel that vibe of what you're trying to get out there. And I think, you know, similarly with Jon Stewart, I think the way you use yourself as a character is probably, from what it sounds like a technique that has really developed over time. Yeah. And, and that's a huge, I mean, cause, cause you don't become a fully formed character in front of people right away. Um, but there is that sort of thing. Like if I, if, if he does a joke, people kind of know his point of view so that he can say something outrageous and have them get like, Oh, that's this, that's, 80% serious and 20% joking. And so like, not only they, that, they know his cadence too. They know, you know, yeah. if, if there's a clip of somebody saying something stupid, it's going to cut back to him with a perplexed look on his face. Right? Exactly. And so I have a, a very similar things that I sort of return to, you know, that, um, that allowed me that built up with, with the audience and it allows me, it allows me the freedom to, to have lots of aside. Like I do tons of asides and digressions mm-hmm. and, um, and as long as you're kind of aware that you aware of them so you don't overindulge in them, that it isn't the story isn't about you, um, it does allow people just toeholds into the narrative, especially when like you know, you don't read the titles of my shows and go, Wow, I really need to <laughs> learn about rebar. 
you know, right. you, you, you have to have me as a guide there and I have to accept and accepting that was a big deal for me because before this, I mean, I worked in a lot of non-narrated documentaries where I wasn't a character in it or behind the scenes. This was the first time I had hosted in years and years and years. And so getting used to my own voice and trusting that it was okay and that the writing was okay. Um, that took a while for me to grow comfortable with. And now I, I kind of recognize what my role is and where I have to step in, even if somebody is super interesting in, you know, in their answer to something. Sometimes I do have to break in and just say, no, but here's why. And then right. and I can pull them in to back into this person in case they're drifting at the 30 second mark of a person talking. And so accepting that role is a big part of why the show, I think, works and, and also my development as a just doing the craft. Um, sure. Because in the beginning, the, the sound of your own voice is the worst sound of all. Like you hate it when you start in radio. I, I, that's all I've heard from most interns. Like they, they're very uncomfortable with their voice. They don't feel natural. They don't feel calm. And it, it took me years and years and years to grow comfortable with that. And through the show, I developed you know, my voice. And, and that's, that's pretty late in the game in terms of a career. <laughs> but but it, it, it definitely happened. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Roman Mars, the creator of 99% Invisible. And Roman, that's a great segue into the final third of this podcast. I always like to ask my guests for their advice for up-and-coming journalists and storytellers. And, you know, you talked about younger people trying to find their voice. What's the biggest question that, that you get from people who aspire to do what you do? And, and what's your answer? I mean, most of the questions these days are about how you make a living at it. And there, there is no one answer. There's no easy answer. The problem with media is that you have to build an audience first and then you need to earn money off of it. And that period of time where you're building the audience can, can be a hard time. <laughs> um, yes. My, my main advice for people making things is to make things that y- you, you need to put out work. Like you have this finite supply inside of you of horrible radio or TV or whatever it is you make and it's bad and it doesn't, you can't think it out. You can't study it out. You have to work it out. You have to make things on deadlines and keep going until it's no longer in there. And eventually a couple years down the line, you're good at it. And that only happens through creating things and putting it out, which is a great reason to go to a radio station or to, you know, and to make yourself have a deadline or put out a podcast and put it out regularly. And, you know, if your first part podcast is your best podcast, you failed. And so recognize the fact that you're supposed to get better. Um, you know, I can't stress enough just working and constantly working and saying yes to everybody and then selectively quitting as you go along. Um, you just, you, and, and, and kind of learning like the job of a producer, like I, I take great pride in being a producer is you just, you're there to solve problems and make things work. And so you can find, um, uh, that that's a skill that works in any number of ways and so you should work on if you like sound rich little narratives like i do great make those but if you only job you can get 
to regularly work is working on a call-in show, do a call-in show. There's a way to produce that to make it better. There's a way to produce everything to make it better. And so all those skills really, really contributed to my, uh, to, to, to everything about what I do now. So I, I'm a, just a big believer in working and working and working. You uh, have a great, a really touching moment, I think, on the Frequently Asked Questions page on your website. You're talking about the equipment you use, and you talk about the different speakers and microphones, and then you drop a bombshell, and you say that everything you use is located in your bedroom. Mm-hmm. So you produce 99% Invisible, the you know what was at one point the number two ranked podcast on all of iTunes, out of your bedroom. And then you say the following line. You don't need nice stuff or a studio. You just need to work. And, you know, I think what you just said, it kind of echoes, I remember Ira Glass is a very famous passage where he talks about how, you know, any good storyteller can feel when it's not, when the work they're producing is not quite at the level that they want it to be at when they're starting out. And that even though you're trying your hardest and you're doing your best, that your early work, it, there's going to be things that don't quite hit the mark. And that's mostly because you just haven't done it enough yet. And that will eventually get to the point where you want it to get to. Absolutely. I mean, he's the master. Like, he's like, in terms of my cohort of public radio people, he's the reason why we're all here. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> anything he says is dead on. And, and, but it's totally, it's totally true that working is the way to be better. I, I think there's some aspect of listening, which is a way to be better too. I, I'm a big listener of a lot of things. And so I, I, I have this thing that I tell people, which is, you know, find a person that you love and want to emulate and try to do what they do and learn how they do it and for a while you're going to be faking their voice it's not going to be you mm-hmm. but through that you can find your own thing so it, my my thing to them is is that stealing plus lack of talent equals creativity <laughs> so like your attempt to do what they do you won't achieve it and often you'll come up with this third way this new way which is your way and that can be something special and eventually you'll find your voice in that so I mean, the big problem with public radio for a while, though, is that everyone was choosing Ira to be the person to emulate. <laughs> and so everything was right. beginning to sound the same and not as good. Um, for me, there's this reporter named Sean Cole, and he's worked for me now on my show now. And he used to work for Radio Lab, and he now works uh, often at this program called The Story. Like, he is the reporter I am trying most to be a lot of the time. Because he's just so, he's so quick. And anything like, he'll do a thing in the scene in an interview that it'll take me like, I'll think of that as a line to write three weeks later. But he has it just right there. Like, I totally admire him. And, and for me, like, I, I was trying to do him for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's times where I'm trying to do Jad of Amrod of Radiolab or Nate DeMeo of the Memory Palace or... Uh, Benjamin Walker of Theory of Everything. These are people like they're you know like some of them aren't superstars. To me, they're the best of the best. But find something and 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 you'll like take little bits of different people if they done it right. You know, like there's no reason to reinvent all that stuff. Try it. 
but through your voice and through your craft, um, it, it will become yours. I, I think that's important to recognize that that's okay. As you view the landscape today, what is the most encouraging sign for you, especially as you, you know, see younger journalists coming up and maybe even trying to emulate what you do? You know, I think that the best thing right now is that, especially in audio, which I, is a, audio is what I love and it's my first love, is that, like you said, you know, my, my gear, now I don't work in my bedroom anymore. I have a little office out back. <laughs> but other than that, my gear is exactly the same. And I think people put me on the level of these shows that have studios and institutional support and 10 people, you know, like I may not be as good as them all the time, but there's no great dividing line between a professional professional and a part-time professional and an amateur. That's one of the great things about audio. It's very forgiving in that way. And so if you go out there, people will judge you on your merits in, in terms of podcasting. And that to me is lovely. That's, that is super encouraging. Like it's tough to get people's attention. There's a gigantic ocean of podcasts out there and to stand out is really, really tough. But the quality of the work, um, it, it stands on its own. Whereas, you know, other things with greater, you know, like things like video and stuff, you know, it's harder to do it as slick you know, you can tell what a low-budget movie is versus a high-budget movie. Right. And so right. that's always something you have to sort of encounter. Usually, you know, st- you know, often storytelling overcomes all those issues, but there's just biases built in when you take it in visually. But you just don't have that in audio. And that, to me, I- I've always loved that about radio. And so I-, I think that's a huge part. And just like the fact that you can put something out and really it can connect to millions and millions of people. Like there is no distribution is meaning less and less over time. It's still pretty important to hitch your wagon to other things and people and institutions, but that's actually, that's asymptotically approaching zero. Like that is not (laughs) something that is getting any harder or more difficult. I totally think you can connect with people and, you know, and maybe not everyone can replicate the huge Kickstarter thing I had, but I think you could, you know, you could get by and pay for it and have it not be a money-losing proposition. You can find an audience and people will accept that. Outstanding stuff. Roman Mars, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I always like to end with that famous journalistic question. Is is there anything that I haven't touched on that you wanted to add? No. I I think you got it. All right, Roman Mars, thank you so much for joining us. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.